It's been seen Jesus on every page of the Bible. I don't know if that's true or not, but what I do know is that every page of the Bible points to Jesus. And every book of the Bible, you can find Jesus in. And we've understood that truth as we've been walking through several of the Psalms for the last couple of weeks. We first of all looked at Psalm 89, and and that Psalm talked about the promise of Jesus' birth. Speaking about David, the psalmist said this. He said, I will preserve an heir for him, that's David. His throne will be as endless as the days of heaven. So there was a promise given to David that David's heir would sit on the throne, and when he came to reign, he would rule and reign forever. Now, when the angel appeared to Mary, telling her that she was going to give birth to Jesus, this is what the angel said. He said, the Lord God will give him, that's Jesus, the throne of his ancestor David, and he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. You see, the promise of Jesus' birth was told to us in the Psalms, and it was revealed over a thousand years later. The promise that was given to Adam and Eve, that was given to Abraham, that was given to David, and was given to each and every one of us who have hoped for forgiveness and eternal life was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. But the Psalms don't just speak of the birth of Jesus. The Psalms also speak of the death of Jesus. In Psalm 22, we are given in graphic detail the agony that Jesus went through on the cross. We're told about the physical agony, the emotional agony, the spiritual agony that Jesus experienced as he was nailed to that cross. We're told that he was thirsting, that his hands and his feet were pierced. But what we discover is the most painful and the most horrific thing that Jesus experienced was those very first words in that psalm where the psalmist said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that phrase right there is the phrase that Jesus uttered on the cross during the darkness of the hour when he took the sins of the world upon himself. In that moment, when Jesus was taking our sins upon himself, the Father was separated from the Son for the first and only time in history. And that agony, being separated from the Father, was the most painful agony that anyone could ever experience. But the psalm began with the agony. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But it ended with victory. The psalm ends with the phrase, it is finished. The very last words that Jesus gives from the cross is, it is finished. But that phrase, it is finished, isn't a cry of defeat. It's a cry of victory. The word literally means accomplished, completed. In other words, what that is saying is Jesus completed, he accomplished the task that he came to perform. And that is providing forgiveness for our sins. When Jesus died, Jesus' death took away the payment for our sins. But today I want us to look at the resurrection of Jesus. Because just as Jesus didn't come to live... He came to die. Jesus didn't stay dead. If he would have stayed dead, his death would have been in vain. Without the resurrection, Jesus would have just been another Jew 
that was crucified on a cross by the Romans. But Jesus didn't stay in the tomb. And the resurrection confirms our victory over sin and death and our hope of eternal life. And so if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn with me to Psalm chapter 16. And we're going to begin reading in verse 1 this morning. And let me encourage you to keep your Bibles open because we're going to continue to go back and look at this psalm. Beginning in verse 1, here's what it says. Keep me safe, O God. For I've come to you for refuge. I said to the Lord, you are my master. Every good thing I have comes from you. The godly people in the land, they are my true heroes. I take pleasure in them. Troubles multiply for those who chase after other gods. I will not take part in their sacrifices of blood or even speak the names of their gods. Lord, You alone are my inheritance, my cup of blessing. You guard all that is mine. The land you have given me is a pleasant land. What a wonderful inheritance. I will bless the Lord who guides me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. I know the Lord is always with me. I will not be shaken for he is right beside me. No wonder my heart is glad and I rejoice. My body rests in safety for you will not leave my soul among the dead or allow your Holy One to rot in the grave. You will show me the way of life, granting me the joy of your presence and the pleasures of living with you forever. Now, this psalm is called a Mishkam. There are six psalms that carry this title. This one and then Psalm 56 through Psalm 60. Now, the word Mishkam has been explained in different ways. Some say that it comes from a a Hebrew word that means engraved or, or sculptured writing. In that case... It would mean something that is to be remembered, never to be forgotten, a timeless word. Something we are to hold on to. Something that we are to write on our heart and remember forever. Warren Wiersbe said of verse 11 that this was his favorite verse. This was his life verse. One that he would always remember. It was engraved on his heart. Verse 11 goes like this in the King James. Thou wilt show me the path of life. In thy presence is the fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Now others think that this word carries the idea of mysterious or something that is hidden. In other words, you have to look beyond the simple words to understand the meaning of the psalm. Now, I believe both of these definitions are correct. I believe that this is an engraved, a sculptured writing that is so important that we need to write it on our hearts. But I also believe that what is said in this psalm is mysterious. It is something that has to be revealed by the Holy Spirit. And it is something that was only revealed a thousand years later with the resurrection of Jesus. Now, the King James calls this a golden psalm, which means that it is a very valuable psalm. Now, most Bible scholars believe that David wrote this psalm during that period when when King Saul was trying to kill him. And David was on the run for his life. David was a, a trusted soldier. David was a confidant, an advisor, a counselor. But because of Saul's jealousy, because of his fearful paranoia, he was trying to kill David. And David was living on the run, hiding out for his life. 
But it is also obvious that as we read this psalm, that David is speaking of something else. David is speaking of someone else. Another time, another person, especially when we read the New Testament. You see, we will never fully understand the meaning of this psalm until we understand that David was writing about someone greater than himself. Now, as we look at this psalm this morning, there are two ways, two perspectives that I want us to look at it from. The first is how David speaks of this psalm in regard to how he should live and how we should live. But then second, I want us to see how this psalm points to Jesus and the promise of the resurrection. Now remember, this psalm was written during the early years of David's life, when he was on the run, before he ever became king. And it was during this time that the prophet Samuel told Saul that God was looking for a man after his own heart. David was that man. David was a man who had the heart of God, a heart for God. And and so as we start and, and look at what this says about David and what this says about each and every one of us, or what it should say about each and every one of us, I want us to ask ourselves, what do we need to do to have a heart for God and have a heart after God? And I believe David gives us four things here. First of all, he tells us that if I want a heart that runs after God, then my hope must be in the Lord. Look what he says in verse 1. Keep me safe, O God, for I have come to you for refuge. Now that word refuge literally means hope. It means trust. What David is saying is, Lord, my hope is in you. Now the Bible gives us that truth over and over on page after page. Each and every one of us trusts in something. Each and every one of us places our hope in something. For some of us, it's ourselves. I've heard people say things like this before. I don't trust anyone but myself. Now, let me tell you, that kind of life will lead not only to arrogance, it will lead to loneliness. Because if you want to have intimacy in your life, you have to trust. Trust can, or intimacy can only come when there is trust. So you don't just trust in yourself. There are other people that say, well, I put my trust in other people. And to an extent, we need to do that. We need to be trusting people. But what I want you to understand is, sooner or later, everyone will let you down. Even the best of people will let you down. Now, there are other people that, that put their trust in things like money or possessions or the government. But all of those things are uncertain at best. What David is saying here is that we need to put our trust, we need to put our hope in God. We can trust in Him in every area of our life. That's why we surrender to Him. We don't surrender to God because we're fearful of Him. We surrender to Him because of the certainty that we can depend on Him. That that He will never leave us or forsake us. That he will meet our every need. That he will be our shelter in the midst of the most horrific storms. That he will comfort us when we're hurting. That's why Solomon told us to trust in the Lord with all of our heart. Don't hold anything back. 
Give him all of your trust. Hope in him completely. And when you do, you can have a peace that passes all understanding, even in the midst of difficulty. But then look at verse 2. In verse 2, David says, every good thing I have comes from you. Now, the New American Standard translates it this way. I have no good besides you. Now, there are two ways that you can translate that Hebrew passage, and both of them are correct, and both of them are descriptive of biblical truth. The first one is this. God is the one who satisfies every good thing comes from God. He's the one who meets our needs. Do you understand that? The Bible says in James, every good gift, every perfect gift comes from God. If it's good, it comes from God. But this verse doesn't just tell us that God satisfies. It tells us that God saves. Because remember, this verse can be translated, I have no good besides you. And the Bible teaches that. The Bible makes it clear that there's nothing good in us. Our best is but filthy rags. The Bible says no one is good, not even one. Our best efforts will never be good enough to earn our way into God's presence. Oswald Chambers, who wrote that great devotional book, My Utmost for His Highest, said this. He said, we have to realize that we cannot earn or win anything from God. We must either receive it as a gift or do without it. The greatest blessing spiritually is the knowledge that we are destitute. Until we get there, our Lord is powerless. Did you get that? Until I come to the point that I am destitute apart from God, that there is nothing good in me and there is nothing good for me, I can never begin to experience the blessings of God. Now, in these first two verses, David uses three different words for God. He uses the word El, which is short for Elohim. The word Elohim means the creator God, the, the all-powerful God. And God is certainly that. God is the one from which everything else came. And God is all-powerful. There is no enemy. There is no adversary. There is no foe that can stand against God. But then he uses another word. He uses the word Lord, which is the Hebrew word Yahweh. It translated oftentimes Jehovah, which is the personal name for God. When Moses was at that burning bush and he asked God, Whom shall I say sent me? God said, Tell them Yahweh, Jehovah, has sent you. I am that I am. That's the personal name for God. But the word literally means self-existent one. You see, God is the only one who exists independently of anyone and anything else. What that means is God doesn't need anything else. God is all God needs. You need things. You need food. You need shelter. You need clothing. You need relationship. You need all of those things. God doesn't need anything that he doesn't have within himself. God is self Existent. But that also tells us that everything else came from God. You see, we must believe when we look at the world that either God is self-existent and everything came from Him, or matter is self-existent and everything came from matter. One of those things makes sense that there is a creator. The other one doesn't. 
God is El, Elohim, the all-powerful creator God. God is Yahweh, the personal, self-existent God. And then the third word is the word master, the, the Hebrew word Adonai, which means sovereign, the one who reigns, the one who rules. God is on his throne. And let me tell you, listen, it doesn't matter what's going on in the world. It doesn't matter how chaotic it looks. God is on his throne. And nothing is happening apart from God either making it or allowing it to happen because it's fitting into his sovereign plan. So let me ask you a question. Is God the source of your hope? Is he the one you put your trust in? That's what we see in these first two verses. But then as we move on, we are told that our heroes must be godly. If I want to live a life that seeks after God's heart, then I need godly heroes. Listen to what he says in verses 3 and 4. The godly people in the land are my true heroes. I take pleasure in them. Troubles multiply for those who chase after other gods. I will not take part in their sacrifices or blood of blood or even speak the names of their gods. In Psalm 119, David says this. He said, I am a friend to anyone who fears God. Anyone who obeys your commandments. The Bible makes it clear from cover to cover that who you look up to, who you want to be like, who you hang out with says a lot about you. You make your friends and then your friends truly do make you. Did you hear me? You decide who your friends are and then your friends are going to decide who you are. Booker T. Washington said this. He said, associate yourself with people of good quality, for it is better to be alone than in bad company. Associate with people of good quality because it's better to be alone than to hang out with people of, of bad quality, bad character. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 said it this way. He said, bad company corrupts good character. Did you get that? Bad company can corrupt someone who has good, godly desires and good character. We sit back in our relationships oftentimes and we say, well, I can change them. There's a better chance of them changing you than you changing them. Listen to what Solomon said in Proverbs. He said, walk with the wise and become wise. Associate with fools and get in trouble. In Psalm 1-1, David said, oh, the joys of those who do not follow the advice of the wicked or stand around with sinners or join in with mockers. This is an important truth for you, regardless of how young or how old you are. And let me say, especially for you teenagers here today, it is so vitally important for you to choose good, godly friends. Because if you don't, I'm warning you right now, there's a better chance of them corrupting you than you changing them. So who are your heroes? Who do you look up to? Who do you want to be like? Who do you hang out with? You associate with godly people and you will find your life a lot better. Because trouble really does follow those who chase after other gods. 
Now, when David wrote this, the gods were Baal and Asherah and those kind of gods. The gods that people chase after today are, are money and pleasure and status and fame. But whatever God it is other than the one true God, if people are chasing after that, stay away from them. Love them. Minister to them. Witness to them. But when you're choosing your close friends, you choose godly people. The third thing that David said here, if I want to be a man or a woman after God's own heart, then my happiness is not tied to this world. Now, as we move into verses 5 and 6, David must be thinking about all the things that he left behind as he's living this life on the run. But as he remembers all of these things that he has left behind, his family, his prestige, all of these things, he's reminded of what he does have. And as he looks forward, he's reminded of what God has promised him. Listen to what he says beginning in verse 5. He says, Lord, you alone are my inheritance. You alone are my cup of blessing. You guard all that is mine. The land you have given me is a pleasant land. What a wonderful inheritance. Remember, David is on the run. David is living in the wilderness. David is living in caves. And yet he says, Lord, you have given me a pleasant land. Some of us have this idea that our happiness is tied to the things of this world. But listen, that's a deception of the enemy. Happiness, real happiness, comes from above. David said, you alone are my inheritance. You alone are my cup of blessing. Lord, I have you and I have all I need. Don't forget that, that as David wrote this, he wasn't living in the palace as a king. He didn't have servants providing for his every need. He was living as a hunted man hanging out in caves. And yet he said, Lord, you are my blessing. And as David looked ahead, he was filled with joy. Not because of what he had, but because of whose he was. Now, we often hear that phrase, the Lord will give you the desires of your heart. But all too often, we forget the first part of the verse. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. If your delight is the Lord, if you're seeking the Lord, if you're longing for the Lord, he will give you the desires of your heart. And so let me ask you a question this morning. Do you desire the Lord more than anything else in this world. Because everything that the world gives can be taken away. Everything that the world gives is temporary at best. That's why the psalmist or the songwriter wrote these words. I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather be his than have riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than houses or land. I'd rather be led by his nail-pierced hand than to be the king of a vast domain or be held in sin's dread sway. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. L listen, the Bible says that for those of us who are followers of Jesus, those of us who have been born again, we are joint heirs with Christ. 
and the blessings of living in his presence and the fullness of joy he gives dwarfs anything that this world can ever give. Now, some of us may be blessed with receiving an earthly inheritance. I hope that as my wife and I get older, we will be wise with our money. And, and I hope that one day if the Lord tarries and we pass away, we'll be able to leave a little inheritance to our kids and our grandkids. That would be a good thing. I would love to do that for them. But listen, nothing compares to the inheritance we receive from the Lord. The Bible says it this way. The eye hasn't seen, the ear hasn't heard, neither has it entered into the heart, the, the mind of man, the things that God has prepared for those who love him. Oh, dear brothers and sisters in Christ, listen, I don't know all that this entails, but I know, I know that you and I have received an inheritance. We have already received an inheritance from the Lord. A down payment, a deposit on that inheritance. And what we have to look forward to, there is nothing and there is no way that we will ever be able to describe it and fully understand it apart from being there in it. And one day we will. But there's one final thing that David says about the good, godly people who, who have a heart after God. He says that if I want to be godly, if I want to have a heart after God, then my help must come from the Lord. And so let me ask you a question. Who do you turn to for help? Who do you turn to for guidance, for instruction, for counsel in life? For David, it was the Lord. Listen to what he says in verse 7. He says, I will bless the Lord who guides me even at night. My heart instructs me. Now, here's what I know. Everybody in life has a compass. Something or someone that we look to for direction as we're making decisions on which way to go, on what to do. For some of us, it's our own intellect. It's, it's our, our years of experience. It comes from us. And we go, well, I've learned this or I've experienced this. Therefore, this is the decision I'm going to make. For others of us, we have trusted advisors or friends that we go to. But David said here that the one he goes to for guidance and instruction is the Lord. He said, the Lord guides me. The Lord instructs me. Now, what is interesting in this verse is David says, even at night. Now, the word translated night here literally means midnight. In other words, when it's the darkest, when the day is about to end, the Lord is still there to guide you. And instruct you. When you're at the end of your rope. When you feel like everything is almost finished. When you feel like there is no hope whatsoever. God is the one who can guide you and direct you. So David tells us how to live our life. But then. As we move into verses 8 and following. These verses. Some of them at least could be a description of David and, and the hope that he had for the future. But it's also obvious that, that he's moved from describing himself to describing a future event, a future hope, a future person. Now, why do I say that? Well, one of the things that David says is that I know that he will not allow my body to rot in the grave. Can I tell you, David's body rotted in the grave? There, there was no person that this was ever written about up to this time 
that this could describe. Every person died, and every person was buried, and every person's body rotted in the grave. And so David wasn't describing himself here. He was describing a future event, an event that would take place over a thousand years later that's revealed in the New Testament, the resurrection of our Lord, which guarantees our future resurrection. You see, Old Testament believers didn't have, have a lot of knowledge about the resurrection. They knew that, according to John Phillips, this is what John Phillips said, and I believe he's correct. He said they knew that Hades claimed the soul and that the grave claimed the body. Hades was the place of the dead. The righteous and the unrighteous dead ended up in Hades. Your soul went there. Your body was buried in the ground. And your body would rot in the ground. Now, David knew that neither Hades nor the grave would be victorious. But that's about all that David knew. He didn't know anything more than that. And we're not sure what exactly God revealed to David as David penned these prophetic words. But what we do know is that David wrote about Jesus. In Acts chapter 2, when Peter was preaching at Pentecost after the resurrection, after the Holy Spirit came upon the believers, this is what Peter said. He said, King David said this about Jesus. I see that the Lord is always with me. I will not be shaken, for he is right beside me. No wonder my heart is glad and my tongue shouts his praises. My soul, my body rests in hope, for you will not leave my soul among the dead or allow your Holy One to rot in the grave. You have shown me the way of life, and you will fill me with the joy of your presence. Listen, Jesus was buried in that tomb, but on the third day, Jesus rose from the grave. His body was not allowed to rot there in that tomb. The tomb is empty. Later on, as Paul was preaching in Antioch, this is what he said. He said, for God had promised to raise him, Jesus, from the dead, not leaving him to rot in the grave. He said, I will give you the sacred blessings I promised to David. Another psalm explains it more fully. You will not allow your Holy One to rot in the grave. This is not a reference to David, for after David had done the will of God in his own generation, he died and was buried with his ancestors and his body decayed. No, it was a reference to someone else, someone whom God raised and whose body did not decay. Brothers, listen, we are here to proclaim that through this man Jesus there is forgiveness for your sins. I want you to listen. A thousand years before Jesus was born, a thousand years before Jesus lived, a thousand years before he died, a thousand years before he was resurrected, the Bible foretold that Jesus would come out of that tomb. Let me tell you, the Bible is an amazing book. It is a miraculous book. It is a one-of-a-kind book. And the Bible is filled with prophecies about Jesus and it's prophecies about the future that you and I have not yet experienced, this book, the Bible, can be counted on. And let me tell you, Jesus is who he said. And that's the gospel. That's the message of the Bible. Jesus came to this earth. Jesus lived a perfect life. Jesus died on the cross to pay for our sins, and Jesus rose again, defeating sin and death. That's the gospel. 
And the crazy thing is, David, a thousand years before Jesus was ever even born, preached the gospel in Psalm 89, Psalm 22, and Psalm 16. You see, that's the hope for the world. Jesus. Jesus coming to this earth. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Jesus defeating sin and death by being resurrected from the grave. That's a fact. I believe it's a historic fact. But here's the deal. That fact will not change your life or my life until we receive the Jesus that the fact is about. The Bible says in John chapter 1, but as many as receive him, choose him. To those, he gives the right to become children of God, those who believe on his name. You see, what Jesus did on the cross and what Jesus did through defeating sin and death with that empty tomb is meaningless, it's useless until you receive him, until you choose him. So have you? Have you received him? Have you accepted him? Because Jesus is the only way that you're going to discover what life is all about. Jesus is the only way you're going to have peace in the midst of the storm. Jesus is the only way you're going to have hope for life after death. So have you received him? I want you to bow your head. Close your eyes. And with your head bowed and with your eyes closed, if you're here and You've never received Jesus. Perhaps you know the facts, but you know that you've never truly received him. You've never chose him. You've never given him your life. If you know that's where you're at today and you want to do that, then I want to encourage you right now to humbly pray this prayer to God. Just repeat these words. Dear God, I humbly come to you today admitting my sin. I'm a rebel. I've disobeyed you. I've lived life as if I were God. I'm sorry. I don't want to live this way anymore. Jesus, I believe you came to this earth. I believe you lived a perfect life, something no one else has done. I believe you died on the cross to pay for my sins. I believe you rose from the grave, defeating sin and death on my behalf. And today I'm trusting you to save me. Today I'm giving you control of my life. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Come into my heart. Make me brand new, I pray. Amen.